The, the main event, the main event, that's a little heavy. You know? A little put the pressure on, you know what I'm saying. My name is Brandon Cobb, and I'm on staff here at Renaissance Church. Before we get started with today's message, I need to know, are we ready? No, I'm joking. <laughs> I'm joking, I'm joking. I'm jo- that was a joke I made on Instagram. It obviously went a little bit too far, um, but here we are. But uh, again, my name is Brandon, and seriously, before we get started with today's message, I'm going to pray for us. God, we love you, and it is in and for and through and by and because of your precious name and your holiness and your power that we gather here today. We worship you, Lord God. We sing to you. We want to hear from you as we break open your word, Lord God. Reveal to us something about yourself that we have not seen. Would your grace and your goodness grip our hearts in a new position this very day, Lord God, in order that we may lift you above everything and love our neighbors like ourselves. Amen. Amen. You know, the rapper Nas Straight out of Queensbridge Projects in Queens. Some of y'all know. Yeah, all right, okay, we got Queensbridge in the house. Heard you. Straight uh, straight out of Queensbridge, he released a documentary about seven years ago. Some of y'all thought I was going to say he released the album, which he did. But um, he released a documentary about seven years ago called Time is Illmatic. And it is essentially explaining the making of his first big album called Illmatic. Some of you know this, but some don't. That's why I'm explaining. And so... As it explains it, you know, in the beginning it starts off, there's like these dark hues and it's flashing a bunch of scenes and Nas is getting in and out of cars with shades on and stuff like that. That's a typical Nas. And he begins to explain his time growing up, right, like leading up to this project and stuff that he created that was great. And he starts to explain his time in, in, you know, growing up in the projects and um, giving the basis of like why he really strived for greatness in his life. And he said something that really struck me that I want to explore with you all today. And what he said was, you know, I dropped out of school in like the eighth or ninth grade because me and my brother, we didn't want to become nothing. Hmm. We didn't want to become nothing. Something that seems pretty simple and commonplace that I think it, it can be pretty deep. We didn't want to become Nothing. And, and right there, I stopped the documentary, and I'm like, why did he say that? And if you know me, I have a million and one questions all the time, so it's not a surprise I stopped it. And it's also not a surprise that I still haven't made it past the two-minute mark in the documentary now, but that's a time for, you know, conversation for another time. But I, I'm pondering this. Why did he say that? And because I don't know Nas personally, my best guess is that maybe there's something his life could have done or a path his life could have taken, maybe one less extravagant, and then that life would have been of lesser value in some ways than the one he currently has. And I think embedded there is this idea that I know I've believed personally, and maybe some of you have believed this as well, it's this idea that we need to be pursuing the most extraordinary endeavors in every arena of life. Now, be the best you, right? Seize the day. All of these different things. And and I'm not here to attack Nas, right? I'm not here to attack him, especially because Jay-Z already did that a long time ago. And we we know how that went. We know how that went. We know, right, we know how that went. I'm not trying to do that. But I think there's something worth considering here. Is this an idea that could be affecting you today? Is it affecting you at work right now? This endless pursuit of the extraordinary. 
Are you somebody who, you're talented, you have desirable skills, and maybe because of that you never stop applying to different jobs? Discontent with the amazing job you might already have, and that would lead you to be a little less faithful than you could be in the role that you're currently in. Or maybe your pursuit of the most extraordinary at all costs is keeping you from certain relationships, maybe even romantic ones. Maybe being paralyzed by options, you, instead of the amazing person you might have in front of you or maybe have had in front of you, you have this picture in your mind of what an extraordinary life really should look like. And maybe that person doesn't quite fit it for some reason. And so you're paralyzed by options. And I'm here to say today that the scriptures have a more healthy and whole alternative to this idea. Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 44, it reads, and all who believed were together. And they had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. Praising God and having favor with all the people, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. This passage is situated right in between, it's sandwiched in between some miracles for a reason. It happens just after, it's written just after, if you read the whole chapter 2 of Acts, it's written just after what is arguably the most significant miracle in the entire New Testament. Peter preached the sermon and 3,000 people came to saving faith at once in Jesus. If you want to put that in city terms, in Harlem, the average block contains just over 1,000 people, residents. So about 1,100 people. So that's like three Harlem blocks of people all at once. Everybody that lives in all those tenements and all those brownstones coming to saving faith in Jesus at the same moment. That's what that would look like. And then it's situated right before another God-sized miracle where a man who was lame, who was crippled his entire life, was given the power to get up and walk in the name of Jesus. And he stands up and he's being recognized as everybody around town as the man who was, who was lame, who couldn't walk his whole life, but is now walking and is praising God because of his ability to walk. And so then it begs the question, well, why is this passage here, these few verses we just read, that seem like it's just explaining some ordinary, maybe even to some of you, maybe some just religious things like they worshipped. Okay, I get it. They became Christians and they worshipped and they gave and they were nice to each other. That sounds pretty normal. But I think in and of itself, as we go along, I hope you see that this in and of itself is a miracle. And the author, he, he explains some, some ordinary seeming things, right? Like, again, they worship, they gave, but he, he leaves out other details about their lives. So it, it, it makes us wonder, why did he add these specific details? And I think in a way, the author is writing here in Acts these few verses to show us the foundation of the extraordinary miracles happening around it. And that foundation, ordinary people being faithful. Ordinary people being faithful. That was the basis here. And, and one thing we can learn from this passage about God and about ourselves as we go on here is that while God is not predictable, it seemed, God seems to do extraordinary things through 
ordinary means. Extraordinary things through ordinary means. And, and these things that seem ordinary, which in and of themselves are truly extraordinary, are this, that they did, that the church here. First, they were generous. And second, they worshiped God. Full stop. They were generous. Verses 45 and 46 explain, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all in need, to everybody in need. Radically giving. I can't explain it better than that. They were radically giving of what they had. And you know me, when I think of this verse today, I, I can't help but think of the radical generosity of the people in this community that we call Renaissance Church. Man, many of you know I was recently in the hospital with a collapsed lung. It wasn't COVID related. Um, we can talk about it after. But some of you are like, why are you up on stage? Or are you okay? Are you okay? Um, I am. I'm, I'm, I'm recovering. <laughs> I'm doing fine. But I was recently hospitalized for 11 days. And I have to say, the way that the people here physically and some of you online rallied around my family when I couldn't be there, my wife and my children, helping with childcare and me, all these things, radically giving of what you have to someone or a family in need. And I'm so grateful to God at what he has done in the hearts of the people in the community we call Renaissance Church. And I just pray that that continues. Giving radically. So they gave radically. And, and not only did, were, they, were they giving generously, they even received in a posture of generosity. Isn't that good? They even received, even in their receiving, they received in order that they may also give. You know, some translations, I'm reading from the ESV here, but some translations say they were sincerely generous. I like that. They were sincerely generous. And verse 46 says that they received with glad and generous hearts. And the way that generous is written there insinuates, in the original, uh, insinuates that gladness came through their generosity. That gladness was a byproduct of sincere generosity. A generosity that, that, that gives sincerely, not expecting repayment, but a genuine gift of the heart resulting in gladness. Isn't gladness such a good witness? It was a witness in this day. That's why it's explained here. And isn't it such a good witness among a city of grumblers that Renaissance Church would be a people glad in God? And not only were they generous, they worshiped God. Verses 46 and 47. And day by day attending the temple. And verse 47, praising God. They committed to their spiritual rhythms and their generosity as well. They committed to being the people of God gathered, worshiping God and coming together, breaking bread, sharing intimate moments. And then check that out. Verse 47, the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. The church was obedient in these seemingly ordinary things and God did the work among them. Obedient in the ordinary and God did the work. This emphasizes that God is doing the work among these ordinary, seemingly ordinary and faithful people. So essentially they became Christians, these 3,000 people, and then they joined a community that was doing these things. They learned these things and they were living in generosity and gladness with worship toward God. 
And so I ask you, would you say that you fit that bill, that you're living generously and living in worship toward God? This is a very ordinary way that the church existed here in this time. And again, these two things might seem anticlimactic, but I say again, it's in this passage, it's in this chapter because it is in and of itself a miracle. And and I don't know about you, but I know for sure that it is only a work of God that could have me standing here doing this right now and not somewhere way, way worse. I know, I don't know about you, but only God could do that. You know, we love the radical story of of Paul in the Bible. (laughs) We love the radical story of Moses in the Bible. But then we forget about the Priscilla and Aquila, merchants who loved Jesus. We forget about the faithful, nameless 3,000 people here in Acts. 3,000. This passage, this chapter talks about the most Christians in the entire New Testament and it explains them in a seemingly ordinary and faithful way. Is it worth considering then? (laughs) Is it worth considering that maybe it's more likely you and I ought to be more like the faithful, nameless 3,000 than the one Peter who preached to them? You see, God has decided that by ordinary means, he will show his strength. (laughs) Because generosity and worship is power. Generosity and worship is power. The church here, they, they excel at these ordinary things, worshiping God and being generous. And then God appeared extraordinary in them. Can I say this? Don't. Try to be extraordinary. Be committed to excelling at the ordinary in order that God might appear extraordinary in you. But you know what keeps us? You know what keeps us from from excelling at the ordinary things God calls us to? This idea that we ought to be pursuing more extraordinary. And you know what keeps us thinking that? Many things, I mean, honestly. It can be family, it can be shame, guilt, money, status. But one thing that I want to pick at here that's a part of that core that might lead us to believe that we need to be pursuing the extraordinary at all costs is power. (laughs) Power. The ability to influence others. Power. To influence Right, like Nas said, I don't want to become nothing. Maybe meaning I don't want to become one without power. How is this about power? I, I can feel it in the room. Brandon, all right, that was a big leap, all right? How did you get? It was a big leap, but it's an appropriate one. Stick with me. So firstly, I don't want you to hear me saying that this is only about power. Again, I mentioned a couple other things that I'm not going to dive into. But what I am saying is that a desire for power is, is, a, is a more common desire of ours than I think we are comfortable admitting. I think it's something in us that we're not necessarily comfortable with. And, and again, the word power has become a dirty word, right, in our time. It's become a word we want to disassociate ourselves from power. That seems like, that's not me. I don't know who you're talking about, but that, I don't associate with power, 
Of course, unless you're watching a versus battle, right? And then, you know, when even singing about how money, power, and respect are the keys to life, that's okay. It's okay then. But other than that, I know you can't stand the word. You can't stand the word. I get it. But there's a reason why we might not like this word power. It comes from somewhere. It has a geographic and time-stamped location and origin, and it's in Europe in the 1800s with people like John Acton. John Acton was a uh, Catholic historian from, from Europe in the 1800s, and he said this, power corrupts, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. This idea that power in and of itself is unredeemable, it, it, it's corrupting, it's bad, it should be thrown away if you can. And, and since this time, when this idea began to surface, it has continued to spread from Europe throughout the world here today. And we're still holding on to this idea in part for the reason that power has been abused, right? Power has definitely been abused. And why has it been? In part because power is invisible. You can't see it when people grab power. It's, it's grabbed with words and, and with ideas and, and with what's morally acceptable, socially acceptable in my city, on my block. It's, it's invisible, and that's how it is abused. So if power, we've been preconditioned to not like this word, and in action it's invisible, then I think it's worth at least having a conversation and seeing if something resonates. I think the last thing I'll say about it is power can't be done away with. Not only is it not possible, it just wouldn't work. Like, there need to be power dynamics in a home with children. Let me tell you from experience. All right? You got to, the parents need to have more power than the children, okay? I don't know if you know that, but they do. And some of us are only here because our parents wielded their power over us. However, you know, healthy or unhealthy, that's another conversation. But... Uh, <laughs> the referees need to have more power than basketball players on, in an NBA game. That, that would not work. It, we would have seven-hour games. It would be six hours and 12 minutes of argue, 48 minutes of play. You've seen it. You've seen the games. No, and that would just be a bad business model if we're being like, no one would want to watch that. It would, it would fail. As a business, it would fail. But let, let me pick on myself first. I found this in myself recently. I told you that I was in the hospital and as great as the generosity was that we were receiving, can I, can I rat on myself a little bit that I, after a few days, and I was there for 11 days, but after like day four or five, I was struggling to hear how generous people were being. I was struggling to hear how my family was relying on someone that wasn't me because <laughs> I couldn't be there. And I even had my wife, Malia, bringing me clothes, to, normal clothes to the hospital to wear over my chest tubes so that when people would come and visit me or when the nurses would come in, I would look, I would look healthy. I would look okay. Right? What was that? I mean, partly, if I'm being fair to myself, I think that it's just not fun being in a hospital, if we can be honest. But I think part of it, too, as I explore that and as I, as I think through this idea, is me trying to maintain an extraordinary appearance. Me trying to look a little bit more physically strong than I am, even in my most painful moments of my entire life, trying to maintain a, a, a good appearance. I hear somebody say, you know, I, I don't look like what I've been through. 
But there's a time and a place for everything. And, and I don't think not looking like what you've been through when you're still going through it is good. People need to know that they can help you. <laughs> people need to be able to see. Sometimes you do need to look like what you're going through so people can actually come alongside you and help and be generous. <laughs> but maybe that's not you. Maybe you're not the type that's pretending like you're not hurt when you are. Maybe you're someone who pursues the extraordinary and pursues influence with aesthetic. Maybe you strive to create a story or a brand or a life so aesthetically beautiful that people would marvel at the great thing you've done. What a great life you've lived. What a beautiful life you're living. Or maybe you tell stories, and when you tell them, sometimes you add details, sometimes you subtract details, you fub the details a little bit, right? And why do we do that? To maintain an extraordinary appearance. (laughs) Or some of us might be pursuing power with performance. Maybe we strive to complete tasks or take on specific career paths that seem socially noble or manage scenarios or finances in a way so as to cause others to marvel at your social responsibility. You are just so noble. Mm, You really get it. Maybe you craft the, the, the best politically correct sentences so flawless that people would be like, man, they would just marvel at how socially noble you are. Why? We're pursuing the extraordinary in hope that we might gain influence or power. What is that? It is the pursuit of power, this idea that by appearing extraordinary in our thoughts and choices and interactions, we might obtain personal power. And I think we would do well to ask ourselves, you know, like, why did I tell the story that way? Why did I add that detail that I know is not true? I tell that story all the time, and I know that detail is not true. Or why did I subtract the detail this time that kind of takes away from the hit of the story a little bit? Why did I do that? Why am I tiptoeing around this person? Maybe because of what I think they believe politically. And so I need to speak a certain way around them. I think we do well to question our motives here and question what we're doing. Acts, Acts is offering us something different here. Instead, Acts, and it, indeed throughout the whole Bible, we see that God accomplishes more through ordinary means than we ever could through our most extraordinary appearance. Philippians 2 verses 4 and 5 say this. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. You know, Jesus saved us through the most extraordinary use and display of power this world has ever seen. And he did so through the most ordinary means possible. Like God put on human skin, was born in the hood, poor, and became a victim of state-sanctioned violence for you and for me. And in Jesus, we see that God doesn't discard power. No, in, in Jesus, we see that God leverages his power perfectly for the good of others. And so you and I as well in faith in Jesus and in faith in Jesus alone, do we participate in power perfectly leveraged for the good of others? 
And Philippians 2.6 continues on, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God. A thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him. You see this servant with power. And bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The gospel doesn't do away with power. The gospel also doesn't say, let's just infiltrate the highest ranks of power and then do better than everybody else that came before us somehow. No, the gospel subverts. The gospel overthrows our very power dynamic. This power dynamic that says, be extraordinary in order that you may obtain influence. Instead, the gospel says, those who serve are the ones with power. (laughs) He or she who gives generously and worships God has power because giving generously and worshiping God is power. It is extraordinary. (laughs) In Jesus, we see that the ordinary things that God calls us to is not ordinary at all. In fact, it is the most coherent and fulfilling use of power possible. (sighs) My block has a block mom. I don't know, anybody else got a block mom on their block? Nah? All right, a couple of y'all. And she's affectionately known as Miss O. No matter what your age is, you, know, you can't even call her by her last name. It's just Miss O, okay? And she's great, man. She's, she just turned 60. In typical Miss O fashion, she threw a party for everyone else to enjoy on her birthday. That's just who she is. But she has lived every day of her 60 years of life so far on that block, faithful, committed. Every year, she throws block parties for the kids on our block, multiple of them. She's the vice president of the garden on our block. She's the president of the block association on our block. She is committed. If you live on that block and you love that block, Miss O, you are family to her. And she's one of the only people who visited me in the hospital when I was there. And she went out of her way to bring me things. Faithful in the ordinary. You know, but if we're honest, a lot of us want to be a lot more like the next Zora Neale Hurston out of Harlem or the next Adam Clayton Powell Jr. out of Harlem or something instead of the next Miss O. But I'm convinced that Harlem needs a lot more people like Miss O instead of the, the, the amazing Zora as amazing as she is. I think Harlem needs a lot more people committed to their block like that. And I know it would honor God if Renaissance Church would be full of those people, people committed to being faithful and excelling in what seems ordinary, but is indeed miraculous. I'm going to pray. God, we love you so much. And we just praise your holy name, God, for who you are. We thank you for your holy simplicity, God. 
(laughs) that you are the same. You are perfect. You are not in need of change. And you are just as good as you were yesterday, as you are today, and as you will be tomorrow and forevermore. And we thank you, Lord God, that because of your divine consistency in you, our worth doesn't change either. In Jesus, you see us the same as you saw us yesterday, today, and tomorrow. We thank you for your divine simplicity, Lord God. We thank you for your extraordinary grace, your extraordinary goodness and holiness, Lord. And we pray, Lord God, that we would be committed to excelling at the ordinary things you've placed in front of us right now, Lord God, in order that you might appear extraordinary in Harlem as you do in heaven. In Jesus' name.